Cyclone Edai, what's the story on the ground and who is helping? NATO pays tribute to countries that joined 20 years ago, but what next for the alliance? Our founding fathers had the vision not just to create NATO, but also to keep the alliance's door open. And what's up with the warrior? Why upgrades to the armoured vehicle are running three years late? Hello, this is James Hurst in for Kate Chabot. International operations are being stepped up to bring food and shelter to those displaced by Cyclone Edai in southeastern Africa. More helicopters are expected to arrive in the region where aid agencies have been struggling to reach tens of thousands of people trapped by severe floods. Let's talk to Plan International's country director, Angela Morethi, who's in Zimbabwe. Uh, Angela, one of the three countries uh, badly affected there. What is the situation where you are? Yes, thank you very much. Um, the cyclone Idai has left a huge amount of destruction uh, all across the southern region of Mozambique, uh, Zimbabwe, and Malawi. I think um, at the moment we've we've uh, got an estimated 480 people confirmed dead. Uh, we've got around 400,000 people who've lost their homes and. Overall, it's affected 2.6 million people. But these numbers are very likely to go up um, as the search and rescue operation continues because one of the big challenges we're having, as you rightly mentioned, is a lack of accessibility to the affected regions. Um, uh, um, the, the cyclone did a huge amount of damage to the infrastructure. So a lot of these regions are only accessible I mean, via it, air. Is the damage stage over or are floodwaters still rising? Um, I think in the case of Zimbabwe, the floodwaters are receding. And I think for us, it's about trying to reach the people in the eastern highlands of Zimbabwe who have been affected and cut off. Um, I, I cannot speak for the areas in Mozambique and Malawi, uh, but I suspect in some of those areas the floodwaters are actually rising, especially in Mozambique. So, um, and I think the floodwaters are still very much there in Malawi. So, well. where where you are now, it's 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 about trying to help those who've been left in desperate situations. What's needed to to deliver that help? Correct, correct. That's, that's absolutely right. That's what we're trying to do. Um, at the moment, what is needed is life-saving supplies, um, food, uh, drinking water, the sanitation and water systems in, these, in the east of Zimbabwe in one district in particular. Actually, two districts have, have been totally damaged. So there's, there isn't water, drinking water, clothes, blankets. Um, shelter, because of all the people who've been displaced, they've got nowhere to stay, medicines, uh, medical care, and, and very importantly also psychosocial support because people have um, gone through a traumatic experience. They've lost their relatives, their homes, their livelihoods. And that, um, so that, that's really important. I imagine the, um, the, the challenges to delivering this are immense and manifold. What are the, what are the greatest ones, though? I think it's it's mainly um, accessibility. We, we're trying to reach these areas. Um, in the east of Zimbabwe, around eight bridges um, on the roads that access these districts have been washed away. So so it, it's literally 
impossible to get there by road. You have to go to a certain point and get out of your vehicle and walk several kilometers. Um, so I think the main issue is is uh, is ac- um, accessibility of of those areas, and of course you know it's quite a big challenge to um, coordinate all the aid agencies who are working. But they are working. They are doing a really good job, and and that's why actually uh, our, our audiences really need to support this this effort through the Disasters Emergency Committee. Um, um, I think they have launched an appeal, and I think everybody out there has a, has an opportunity to support because I have seen it working. This afternoon, I was in in one of the districts in eastern Zimbabwe, and I witnessed for myself uh, people being airlifted uh, and receiving immediate medical attention. Well, so uh, we, we 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 do need your help out An- there, please. Angela, thank please. you for uh, finding the time to talk to us today. Angela Morethi in Zimbabwe. Uh, team Rubicon UK, uh, which is largely made up of military veterans, has a recce team on its way to Mozambique. Sam Wheatley-Smith is the organisation's mission hub manager. He says they should be able to offer support in a number of ways. So in the, in the initial stage, um, providing needs assessments to remote areas that maybe haven't been reached yet and working out what are the core needs of those people that are cut off from assistance and maybe lacking um, initial, initially water and food. Um, from that point, we can start to share that information out and get support to those people. Um, providing purified water is something that is just absolutely essential in these early phases of a response. Um, so being able to provide that water to those communities can help initially um, reduce the risk of the life, but also more long-term reduce the risk of communicable disease. Um, outside of that, last mile logistics, there's um, a lot of aid being transported into the country that needs organizing, needs distributing to the most people in priority. So combining our needs assessments with potential plans for how to distribute that aid is something we might be able to support with. Uh, that is Sam Wheatley-Smith from Team Rubicon UK. Well, let's bring in our defence analyst, Christopher Lee, uh, and also Professor Paul Rogers, uh, Professor of Peace Studies at uh, Bradford University of Bradford. Uh, Christopher, first, um, it's interesting, the, the UK's pledged £18 million worth of aid through DFID. Uh, no military involvement. Is that a, is that a surprise? Well, it's not, it, it's not a question of no military involvement. Who needs the military involvement? What do you do with it? And do you need it now or do you need it later? At the moment, South Africa is, is, is supplying the army set up, including air power. Uh, the Indian Navy is the one that's standing off. If you look where this happens, let's go, just go back 10 days ago. 10 days ago, nothing much happening. Then you get the beginnings of a cyclone out in the Indian Ocean. And if you look at a map of uh, South Africa, it's that sort of flattish bit that runs down from the Hornish, Horn of Africa, which brings into Mozambique. Very difficult to get in there. Um, so March 11th, that's what you've got. Two weeks later... We have got the most biggest devastation that you've seen right across. Mm-hmm. Who can tell the MOD, for example, or the Indian MOD or the South African what they actually need? Take an example where uh, we were talking about, uh, earlier about Zimbabwe. Uh, Chimani Ani. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, an important area. It's a new town, etc. And it should be able to withstand because it was partly built to withstand things like this. Um, uh, Terence Shivy, who is the acting defence minister in uh, Zimbabwe, went down to take a look for himself to see what you wanted, see what they could actually supply from the Ministry of Defence. Um, he says, full-scale war. It looks as if you've just 
entered the aftermath mm. of one of the biggest battles you've ever seen. So helicopter comes in and it says, okay, we, we can take four, four, four casualties and we will send another helicopter. And then somebody says, well, actually, where's the fuel for the helicopters? Who's supplying the fuel? Can we get the fuel? And they said, well, actually, no, because the helicopter dump, the fuel dump, was wiped out on day two. And there is the size of the problem. So what you've got, and at the moment, there is an ex-Royal Navy uh, air officer uh, down there trying to assess if you want outside help, as they, we did in the year 2000. We were in exactly the same place with the, uh, the MOD. Who decides what you need? Paul Rogers, do you think, obviously, one of the people who who were involved in deciding are the, are the countries themselves, whether they want military involvement. Certainly military capability would be the kind of thing that, that, that could help that we were hearing from Plan International, you know, problems of accessibility and the like. There's certainly a case for a military involvement in some of these uh, terrible events. This is certainly true, for example, in the prevalence almost year on year of major hurricanes hitting the Caribbean. And many people argue that if Britain has a guard ship out there regularly in the hurricane season, it should be really fully equipped for this sort of eventuality. And certainly this is a problem overall. The other thing I think one must always remember is we describe this as a natural disaster. It's not a natural disaster, it's a natural hazard. And it's a disaster because people are not able to cope, the cities aren't built right, the countries are too poor and the rest. It's a very important distinction. And an awful lot of this actually requires what you might call the equivalent of conflict prevention in the long term. One, obviously, is having systems which can cope with these problems, but the other, obviously, also is to recognize the underlying issue, and certainly, almost certainly, with this cyclone, is the growing incidence of these kinds of events due to climate change. You put those two together in the two different areas where the military certainly do have a role. My own view is that the second area, actually warning of the huge security implications of climate change, must become a lot more dominant than it is at present. And briefly, Christopher? It's, it's interesting that Africa is the only continent the MOD has a, a plan for each country that is there. But then you get into the politics. What do you do when you start to try and help Zimbabwe? It becomes a difficulty. Christopher Leeple Rogers, stay with us. <laughs> Still to come, why the US may halt the sale of F-35s to Turkey and warrior woes, the three-year delay to upgrade the armoured vehicle. Earlier this week, the head of NATO paid tribute to the contribution of former Soviet countries as the alliance marks 20 years since they began to join enlargement. And of course, NATO itself celebrates its 70th birthday in two weeks' time. Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg also again rejected claims that the alliance is provoking Russia by signing up Moscow's former allies, and he signalled enlargement will continue. We should not take peace for granted. In 1949... Our founding fathers had the vision not just to create NATO, but also to keep the alliance's door open. And Jens Stoltenberg said this open-door policy is a democratic principle, not just an attempt to rile Russia. It's not a provocation, it is a result of uh, independent sovereign decisions by independent sovereign nations. Well, uh, I was looking at the figures, Paul Rogers. I, almost getting close to doubled in size NATO over the last 20 years. Uh, and you have to wonder, how big does NATO want to get? And that actually asks the question, what is NATO for? Are we still asking that? 
We're not really. I think this has been a problem for nearly 30 years now. There's never been the kind of basic thinking about what NATO is for, because this was hugely a creature of the Cold War era. You go right back to 1952. And of course, NATO came first. It was the Warsaw Pact as an integrated group, which came rather later. And I don't think people have even come to terms now, nearly three decades later, with what this kind of uh, alliance should be doing. What is certainly true is that at its, as it has grown and come even closer to Russia, uh, in one sense, uh, it's basically, see, you get this common Russian view that their so-called near abroad has been encroached on. And the second issue, of course, is that Putin is extremely skillful at using this as an external threat for his own political purposes. So at the very least, I think there has to be a reconsideration there. Uh, and the way that Stoltenberg talks about the fact that this is democratic and it's intended to expand, yes, democratic, intended to expand, I'm not sure until we've really thought what it's about. Uh, Christopher, <clears throat> the, the politics are interesting. If you go back to 1949 or that period, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, from while the Second World War was still going on, uh, NATO was an idea, really, that came from the Norwegians. Uh, Trigvili, and it was a, it was important that it came from there because the insistence that or the belief that that, that the so-called West would actually uh, win the war. But the importance came then that they recognised that if they were going to provide something for NATO for the alliance, who should provide it? And the Americans wanted to stay out at first. And then Montgomery, General Montgomery, who was still around, was asked, well, how many troops would you need? He says, 97 divisions. Where are we going to get 97 divisions? And there's the problem. You don't have, even today, the whole setup and what you're trying to use them for. The, and the key word we always hear is transatlantic and the transatlantic alliance. It's about bringing Europe and the US together very much. Well, don't forget the America believes that Europe is still the front line. But then we also have President Trump saying this week that he uh, it might be a good idea for Brazil to join NATO. Paul Rogers, what did you make of that? Uh, well, it came from President Trump. Uh, and I, I think in a sense, I don't know where this comes from. Uh, essentially, I think many people would argue that if you do, do want wider global unions, then it's much better to do it, however difficult and however long it takes, uh, through the, the United Nations in some way. I think the idea that NATO spreads beyond the North Atlantic, it's already spread very far in towards uh, well, Eastern Europe, that it spreads also to countries way outside. I really can't see the point of that, and it's difficult to see what President Trump is getting at, whether it's one of his immediate things, as we often get, or whether there's something more behind it. Um, there's, there's another side to this, isn't there? That if you look at NATO as an alliance, a lot of the countries can't do the job. They, they can't do this because they haven't got the resources, nor do they have some of the political decision-making and values. But, but isn't that want what to being it. in an alliance is about, that everybody ultimately... Well, of course it is. Unevenly it, shares a burden. It's also what, what, for example, the United Nations is about. So when you get, for example, into uh, things like uh, providing a peace, a peace uh, uh, force, it may be, used, may be that you're using uh, a NATO uh, a country to provide the transport to actually get uh, the peacekeeping force there. It's, there. We're facing a different type of world than we faced in 1949, but we still have the same mental or, or, or military uh, facility to actually try and fix the problems, which in fact don't seem to go away. Well, let's focus down on, on the fact that alliances aren't always perfect. And one particular problem in NATO, it seems the United States 
has qualms about selling the F-35 fighter jet to one particular member of the alliance. According to the Reuters news agency, the US could soon freeze preparations for delivering those F-35s to Turkey. And it's all because Turkey plans to buy a Russian air defence system. Professor Paul Rogers, what is going on here? Is, is Turkey making a, a, a huge mistake in, in terms of NATO here? Well, you always had to remember that while you may have these real difficulties between Turkey and the United States, the United States has one slight problem, that it has a very large air base actually in Turkey, and it's been dependent on that base for much of the conflict we've seen across Syria and Iraq in particular in recent years. So to that extent, there's an awful lot of smoke and mirrors going on here, what people are saying in public and what they would accept in private. And and parts of the F-35 are made in Turkey. They are indeed. Uh, now, obviously, the Americans want to sell F-35s to Turkey. It's part of a, a huge programme which they're hoping to sell worldwide. The S-400 system, <coughs> the Russian system, is a pretty advanced system. And the Americans believe that by Turkey going for that, then it's going to cause real problems in possibly the, the spillage of advanced computer technology. Well, yeah, they talk about con connecting their computer to an enemy's computer effectively. Yes, and there may be similar problems, in fact, with India at present, and maybe one or two other countries. So it's problematic, but Erdogan himself really is intent on having a degree of international independence that can be problematic for, for NATO. NATO's had these problems in the past, but it's particular here, given the nature of the current Turkish government. I mean, Christopher, do you, do you think, given the difficulties, and they're not just these, between the US and Turkey, if Turkey is removed from the F-35 programme, is, is, is that a proper crisis for NATO? Well, it's only a proper crisis for Turkey. I mean, in times past, people would have sat and said, what on earth are they doing giving F-35s to Turkey? Turkey actually doesn't need F-35s unless you want the best air force that there is. You then get into the other side of it, is what is it they, they're really worried about? And it's the bits and pieces that go into the F-35 that you may have to have access to, the, including intelligence systems, into, uh, electronics, etc. And there are people in Congress, for example, who would say, why are we giving these guys stuff that we wouldn't give, for example, to some of our allies, indeed? And in fact, some of the allies wouldn't wouldn't particularly want them. But the point is, does Turkey need them? Who decides what Turkey needs? Well, in fact, the president of Turkey will decide what he needs. And then you just look over the Bosphorus, you look over the border, and then you see what Turkey is faced with. And the Turkey is faced with Syria still, uh, 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 yep. all along the Euphrates, warfare, uh, uh, Kurds, the whole lot. And there you see the problem. You've got to have the biggest air force you can have because to get to a lot of your enemies, the easiest way to do so is from an aircraft, but perhaps not these F-35s. Paul Rogers, is, is, is Turkey looking at this situation that it is surrounded by and thinking maybe it is better off possibly, you know, uh, pinning its colours to Russia rather than NATO? I think it basically wants to play both ends against the middle. Uh, it wants to be able to benefit from both sides. But at what point does it have to make a decision then? Well, it'll probably go for a pretty long way. One's thinking is that in the final thing, it will tend to go back with the United States. But they will try to avoid doing that to any extent possible. What they'd like to do is to keep both sides on board. And from their perspective, this does increase their regional status, if nothing else. And it's not just Russia. Just think who Turkey thinks about every single day of the week. For example, uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, it, it, the concepts of why you have certain types of weapon systems, why you have the alliance that comes up once you get into the industrial 
uh, set up uh, spreads far more than we normally imagine. Oh, are they on the American side or the Russians? I think that doesn't apply anymore. Final thought, Paul Rogers, how do you think this is likely to resolve? I think it is likely that Turkey will get both, but there will be pretty strict conditions attached. If it decides against the F-35, that is the major development, and that will tend to mean that it is going to go rather closer to Russia. Maybe fine for things like the S-400, but in terms of Russian frontline aircraft, well, the Americans are way ahead on that. Professor Paul Rogers, thank you for your thoughts and your time today. Upgrades to the Army's Warrior Armoured Vehicles are now running more than three years late. The Ministry of Defence has also warned the programme is more than £200 million over budget. The information came in a letter written by the Ministry of Defence's top civil servant to the Commons Public Accounts Committee. Well, earlier this week, I spoke about this to Francis Tusa, editor of Defence Analysis. Overall, the letter from uh, Stephen Lovegrave, got to say it's lukewarm. It tries to put over a, don't worry, uh, we're, we're past the worst. Unfortunately, all of his qualifications of what's going on just makes you think the worst is yet to come. The MAD say they've, there have been problems, they've got it back on track. Bearing in mind the number of problems with Warrior, whether you can believe such an assertion is open to doubt. And... Um, redesigns, multiple redesigns of the turret because it didn't work, do not bode well. How important is this to the Army? Just give us some, some context. If you are going for this Army 2025, which has got uh, a, a high mobility, high redness division, three, maybe four brigades, two of which are armoured infantry, you need a tract uh, infantry combat vehicle for two of those brigades. If you don't have that, your strike power disappears. So if Warrior CSIP, Capability Sustainment Programme, doesn't come to pass, you are stuffed. If it does come to pass, but it, it ends up three and a half years late, maybe with slightly fewer vehicles because of this cost overrun, what, what, what could that mean to the Army? If you had planned on a minimum of four armoured infantry battle groups um, and it suddenly turns out you only have three, two, um, that's a problem because you just don't generate the same combat power. Um, they're talking about contract early 2020. Well, okay, what's going to be needed to uh, delivery? It's going to take a couple of years for the first vehicles to start to be delivered. If the Ajax scout program is anything to go by, um, will they be able to meet the in-service date? And early 2020 slash mid-2020, and this is before Brexit and all these issues, um, you may miss all of your dates and you just won't miss your brigade in-service date. Um, one of the important things in the letter is that although it, it says, for example, the unequivocally value for money has has yet to be proved, the MOD still believes this provides best value. Presumably the army still want this as well. Um, when you have the belief about value for money, I still believe in fairies at the bottom of the garden. Um, whether it is value for money, they haven't yet, because of the test, the delays and so forth, worked out what the actual production contract is going to cost. So even if the vehicle passed all of its uh, trials, which it's doing at the moment, is it going to be as cheap and affordable as was believed in 2009? And the jury is out on that.
And if they do rethink, if they either go for a different vehicle or smaller numbers, what's the ripple through then for, for the army structure? Either of the alternatives of uh, fewer vehicles or a different vehicle altogether. Different vehicle altogether means even more delays because you've got to go through a completely new competitive process, um, a commercial process with someone else to work out what you're going to buy. Fewer numbers means, well, if the plan was two armoured infantry brigades, if you buy, for the sake of argument, half the number of vehicles, then you're not going to do that. The editor of Defence Analysis, Francis Tusa. Christopher, can I draw on your greater experience than mine here? I find myself... Is that because I'm elder than you? I'm trying to be polite about it. I find myself <laughs> doing this story, as I've done so many stories in the past, and suddenly wondering, can you think of a major military equipment purchase that has ever gone to plan, been on budget and on time? Trident. The original Trident. The was. original Trident was yes. Okay. Can I just put into something here? Um, I mean, we get very excited about the uh, uh, the latest system, and you can find somebody in the MOD who telling me if you'd have gone out and bought the Bradley in the first place, you wouldn't have this problem. You'll be sitting in the backyard even now. And the whole concept in the future, especially let's let's just gently think of Brexit that if Brexit doesn't go the way that everybody hopes it will go and you've got a reduction in the economy of the United Kingdom, then the MOD, which has got base cover at the moment, it's okay, like uh, like education and like the hospital system. Um, the MOD may have to give up some things. It won't have the dollars and we'll be trading a lot in dollars. It mm. won't have the dollar for everything, nor will it at the moment have the manpower for everything. And we might see start to see changes that will happen to the shape. So when Francis quite rightly talks about sort of two, three, four, or whatever organizations that need a certain amount of... It starts to tell you what they intend to do with the army at the moment, which, because they won't have, they'll have 8%, maybe as much as 8% less money in let's say four or five years time and, and there's also the <clears throat> the, the currency questions which you've, you've alluded to i mean not only will they well, not, the not, not have exactly not have the, have the dollar but also the, the dollar could be equivalent to a pound it could be and i think what i mean what we ought to realistically say is is this just supposing the mod which is protected <clears throat> has eight percent less in its budget because uh, everybody's going to have eight percent in, in their budget less what does it do? It looks at programs and says, where can we buy what's already on the shelf? And this goes back to the biggest projects like aircraft, and it comes down to long-term projects like this. You look at any program that doesn't seem to be making its timetable, and you know that you've probably got one that's going to hang off on the end when they come to do the sums again. I think we're going to be talking about this, about this is a, one lot, of them. a lot more next week. Before we go, though, briefly, the, the Commonwealth <coughs> Wargrave Commission has announced it's opening a new visitor centre at its workshop headquarters in Beaurain in northern France. The commission manages 23,000 memorial sites around their world. 
with their staff creating and caring for monuments that commemorate those who died. And from June, the public will be allowed behind the scenes to meet the craftsmen and women that create and maintain those memorials. Christopher Lee, uh, uh, Walgrave's uh, personal cenotaphs, how long do we maintain those? Uh, we maintain them in our own country quite a lot. <clears throat> and we can maintain as long as there is somebody from a regiment or a family that wants mm. to do it. But not on the scale that you see, let's say, for the First World War uh, or, or nor the Second World War. And that's brilliant. And it will happen. And quite often people who live locally want to maintain it as well. But there's another side to this. It's not just the First and Second World War, which is the, the, the you know, the family mm. bit, the memory bit that gets to you. India, Wargraves commissioner in India. I think they're in Hong Kong. And what about at the bottom of the sea? And to and many, so it's a much bigger yeah, demand than to, one might imagine. I mean, you, you talk about maintaining them at home. Actually, to many people, these places overseas are a bit of Britain. Yeah, it's also a reminder um, that we went to do it somewhere. And you go back to something we were talking about earlier and Stoltenberg and Co about uh, uh, NATO. Our thinking, military thinking, is still, given the worst, we're still going to have to go and do it. Uh, and it's a much bigger task than we might imagine. And there'll be no other reasons for war graves. Christopher, thank you very much indeed. That is all for this week on BFBS SITREP. If you've got an opinion you would like to share about something you've heard on the programme or something you think we should be talking about, you can always tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Uh, don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Join us again next week. Kate should be back in the chair. I'm James Hurst. Bye for now. Bye for now.